We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Gareth Walsh, the Energy Energy Practice Lead for the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, who in this podcast, we will be discussing uh, a paper that he has uh, contributed to uh, called A Just Transition for Africa. Fascinating uh, paper, which Gareth is one of the authors of. Welcome to the podcast, Gareth. Hi, Will. Thanks very much. Thank you. It's great to have you on, Gareth. And um, the first question that I would like to ask you is, how did you first get involved with um, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change? Um, I guess for the, for the first 10 years of my career, I worked with utilities, um, largely in the West. Uh, so UK, Australia, US, um, a little bit of work on financing, power trading, and then, and then worked with the UK energy regulator. Ofgem. Um, and during this time, I got the chance to do some work in, in Kenya and Indonesia on the energy sector. And that sort of helped to shape a decision on my, my part that I wanted to do some work in Africa. And I mean, mm. it's partially that that cliche about, about making an impact. But I guess, mm. to be honest, more selfishly and more importantly for me, it was it was the, the work and the sort of the interest in the work to sort of build a system, um, have that kind of view across a, across a whole power system as opposed to being in, in the UK where it's, it's very fragmented and, you know, you're, you're only ever really looking at one, one piece of the puzzle. So I, um, I went and did a master's in, in Cape Town, actually, um, energy and development studies. And then through a friend, I heard about the Tony Blair Institute. And at the time, Tony was speaking to President Kagame of Rwanda, uh, um, about supporting their energy sector. They, only about 20% of the country had access to power. They had huge, huge power deficits. And I, I got in touch with the Institute. And then a, a few weeks later, I was off to Rwanda, um, what was supposed to be a, about an 18-month assignment. And I've been here since. So that was 2012. So that's a, a decade. <laughs> a very long 18 months, really, isn't it? <laughs> Long 18 months, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the paper that we're going to be discussing today, as I, as I just mentioned, is called A Just Transition um, for Africa. So uh, could you tell the listeners how this particular paper came about? Yeah, so you know, since, since I joined the Institute in 2012, we've grown in terms of our presence across Africa. We're, we're currently working with, with 18 presidents and countries across across the continent. And if I'm if I'm completely honest, until until a couple of years ago, climate was was not really a priority of the you know the presidents and the governments that we that we worked with. It was always jobs, energy, so 600 million people across Africa six, across Africa um, don't have access to electricity, uh, agriculture, food security, but you know avoiding avoiding emissions um, was. Never really, a, never really a priority, which I think is understandable when you consider that Africa only contributes about three percent of, of global global emissions. But um, recently, over the last couple of years, really, we've sort of seen an increasing recognition of of climate's impact on on the development of the countries we work in. So, I think in two ways, really. First, the impact of climate change itself. Um, so, you know, it's, it's worth being clear again. You know, this isn't really a challenge of, of Africa's making, but Africa is in the front line of the impact. And I think, you know, nowhere is this more sort of viscerally um, clear than, than the example of Lake Chad. So mm. Lake Chad is around 
sort of Nigeria, Chad, Niger, across across the Sahel, um, a sort of key source of water and key to the livelihoods of about 40 or 50 million people. Temperatures there are rising about 50% more than they're rising across the rest of the globe. And mm. since the 70s, this lake has reduced to about a fifth of its original size. And now it's one of the most food insecure parts of the world with about half a million children suffering from acute malnutrition around there. Um, you know, there are other examples in countries that we work in. So Hurricane Ida, um, which impacted Mozambique, Malawi and, and um, Zimbabwe back in 2019. At a macro level, you know, AFDB estimate that over the next 30 years, Africa's GDP will be about 20% lower than it otherwise would have been mm. as a consequence of, of climate change. So there's, there's definitely that angle of you know, governments recognizing the impact that climate change is set to have on them. But then there's a, there's a second set of impacts which are almost more front of mind, if I'm honest, which are kind of the consequences of the reaction to climate change of us in the West. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a huge disparity in emissions between countries in the West and countries in Africa. So, you know, the average emission per person in the DRC is less than half a percent of the average emission of someone in the US. However, on the part of the West, there's an increasing focus on curbing Africa's emissions, um, largely sort of by limiting finance and limiting development choices for them. And, you know, we saw this about five years ago, really on on coal um and i'll be honest i i won't lose much sleep over that kind of coal coal isn't isn't even a an economic proposition in in a lot of countries these days but i think the the sort of battleground that this has moved on to increasingly is is gas and you know a lot of a lot of the countries we work in are either looking to develop gas power plants or have gas fossil fuels and you know they they sort of see the see the hypocrisy of of Europe and the US, which are still heavily dependent on gas, as you've as you've seen by the recent price increases, mm, um, yeah. trying to sort of restrict Africa's ability to to move forward with things like that. So, our our sort of take on this is that climate change is obviously it's obviously real, but um, it's not it's not really a viable approach to mitigate it at the expense of Africa's development. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we we thought we'd write this paper to address this overriding feeling from the governments that we work with that the West is is being hypocritical on this. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, as as you say, you make the point um, in the paper related. Um, to the transition, particularly with um, cheaper fossil fuels um, like gas. So uh, in the paper, you argue that um, for Africa to be able to transition um, in a way that is sustainable and doesn't impede the economic um, development of uh, Africa as a whole, as, as you mentioned there, that collectively HICs, or as, as, as you um, refer to them, high-income countries um, need to be able to pay for a financial bridge, which is the bridge between the cheaper fossil fuels like gas and slightly more expensive green energy sources. Now, how do you think that this financial package can be successfully argued as being necessary to the populations of high income countries like the UK and the US? Because, of course, you will have people um, in countries like the UK and the US. And I mean, you, you mentioned um, the rise in uh, energy bills in the UK, which is something that uh, people in, in the UK will definitely be seeing at the moment. How can you argue to them that we need uh, to give this, this financial package to help um, nations in Africa transition when we're already seeing uh, an increasing 
uh, cost of living in the UK and in other European countries. And the populations of those countries might obviously um, say, you know, well, why should we be giving um, money there when there are obviously uh, financial, serious financial problems uh, occurring in countries like the UK and um, countries around Europe? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think, I mean, the, the first the first point is, I think it is a, it is really a point of enlightened self-interest. So this mm. is a, what we're really looking for is a, is a fair way of addressing a global problem. First point I'd say is that um, fossil fuel technologies are often cheaper and more flexible in Africa mm. than, than, than renewable technologies. So, you know, sun, solar is only available when the sun shines, for example, mm. whereas, whereas gas you can dispatch anytime. And if you want that solar power to be available at night, you have to invest in batteries, and that's going to cost you two or three times the price of producing power via via gas. Um, I think you know there are areas where renewables are cheaper. Um, standalone solar solar systems is a is a sort of a big success story, and is a great way of sort of rapidly expanding energy access. Um, I think the second point to note is that you know Africa desperately needs low cost energy to industrialize and create jobs. So you know in most countries across Africa, power is heavily subsidized. In reality, this subsidy means that they're moving money away from health and education to subsidize the power sector. And despite this, power costs in Africa are often much higher than power costs in Asia, with whom, frankly, Africa's competing to to, to industrialize. So from an African perspective, there's not really a strong case um, why an African country should pay more for their power and damage their global competitiveness to address an issue that's not of their creation. Mm. Um, but I think from a global perspective, there's a very, very strong case for this. Um, I mean, Africa clearly can't follow the same development path as the West or, or even China. If you consider Africa's population is going to double by 2050, it'll be about 2.5 billion people by then. Um, and then if you multiply that by the the growth that we we hope and we expect will will happen on the continent, uh, the energy demand is going to be is going to be vast. And you know, even if Africa were to increase its emissions to the, the global average per person by 2050, it'll be emitting more CO2 than China and India combined. So I would say, you know, it really is a an issue of sort of enlightened self. Mm amongst every every other country in the world to make sure that Africa does not follow the bad example that we have done in the West and, and mm. China have done more recently. Mm, absolutely. Now, um, a, a bit ago, earlier on, you mentioned uh, climate mitigation. And the paper is very clear in making a distinction between climate mitigation and climate adaptation. Now, do you think you could explain to the listeners what you mean by the terms climate mitigation and climate adaptation? Yeah, I bet, yeah, there are a lot of a lot of words in this sector, <laughs> a lot of confusing words. So mitigate I mean mitigation basically is mitigating against the mitigating against the impact. So essentially avoiding um, CO2 emissions. You know, on that, obviously Africa's contribution to these emissions is disproportionately small. Um, adaptation is adapting to the what are sadly inevitable impacts of climate change so this is you know being able to adapt and, and against things like weather events um, through enhanced food security uh, flood defenses um, approaches to handle migration of people and I think on this it's worth noting that Africa's adaptation needs are 
are the biggest of any area of the world, in part due to unfortunate geography. Um, they just happen to be bearing the biggest consequences um, mm. climatically, uh, but also because of the, the low incomes across the continent and the lack of infrastructure. Um, and, you know, frankly, one of the best ways to adapt to the impacts of climate change is, is not to be poor, it's mm. to develop. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in, in terms of development as well, I think one of the interesting things that you raise in the paper is climate finance. So the ability of, of, of how to be able to um, finance things related to climate change. Now, how well is um, climate finance working in the moment in terms of building infrastructure in Africa and ensuring that there are um, that, that there is money going into um, different African nations in terms of giving them help for building uh, the infrastructure for uh, to deal with climate change. I mean, is climate finance something that's going well in Africa at the moment, or is it something that's not going uh, as well? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's fundamental <laughs> getting money mm. flowing to Africa for um, you know funding the increased costs of the, the green alternatives to fossil fuels. Um, paying and incentivizing countries to maintain carbon sinks. So Africa has some of the world's largest carbon sinks, which actually absorb CO2. Um, and, you know, as we've said, so helping African countries adapt to a, a crisis that isn't of their making. So mm. climate finance, I mean, I think there are four, four big challenges, really. The first is there's a, there's a credibility issue, which frankly has come from this failure of of developing countries to honor honor a commitment that was made back in 2010 to channel around $100 billion a year to de developing countries to help with both climate mitigation and climate adaptation. Um, this hasn't been honored. Um, the, you know, the deadline for this was 2020. Uh, the latest numbers that are available are from 2019 and you know, the, the total commitments then were around, were around 80 billion, mm. to be honest. I was at I was at COP this year, and this was a bit of a, a bit of a shadow hanging over COP, and a bit of a, a stain on the on the West's credibility. Um, but you know, even beyond that, there's then the type of money that's being given, and you know, African countries would argue a lot of a lot far too much of this money is coming in the form of loans, not grants. Um, there's a there's a third issue, which is you know how what how how the money that actually was committed and was channeled was spent. And, um, you know, only a quarter of the money that was that was channeled to developing countries was actually spent on adaptation. Um, so that's about 20 billion in 2018. There's a, a UN estimate that by 2030, the developing countries will need around $300 billion a year. So, you know, there's a, a huge shortfall. And I think another... Another thing that sort of grates with African countries is the, the focus on spending this money on mitigation, i.e. preventing them, <laughs> helping mm. prevent them from emitting, yeah. uh, rather than adaptation, which is kind of helping them adapt to the mess that we've created. So, mm. you know, a, a good analogy is that there's this, there's this global lake that we're all sitting around and the West's been pouring toxic mess <laughs> into it <laughs> for a century. And, yeah. uh, that's all piling up on Africa's shores. And our focus is on telling them not to pollute <laughs> rather yeah. than helping them sort of adapt to the mess that we've created. Um, I think there's, there's one final issue, and I think this is very important, sort of looking forward, in that um, there's been a heavy reliance, well, historically, uh, for the last 10 years or so, there's been a heavy reliance on this concept of blended finance, particularly mm -hmm. on developing infrastructure across Africa. 
and this this sort of came out of this um, billions to trillions agenda, which sort of started from the perspective that development finance is limited, but there are huge pools of private capital in the world, and what you should be doing is using this development finance as much as possible to leverage that private capital. So, you know, de-risk investments to bring that private capital on board. And it's a very sensible approach. If you look at, you know, the, the magnitude of these different pools of capital, development mm. finance is ultimately going to be limited. It, it has a ceiling. So it's a very, very sensible approach. Um, however, you know, to be honest, it's had its failings. So this is, this approach has been adopted on infrastructure, as I say, for the last 10 years or so. And there are a couple of major, major challenges. I mean, the first one is that the leverage, if you like, is very low. So by, mm. by leverage, I mean the, the volume of private finance that we're attracting for each pound of development finance that we put in is actually quite low. And most estimates are that this is, this is less than one. So, you know, for every, for every dollar that we put in of development finance, we're, we're not even managing to match it by immobilizing mm. private finance. And then the, the second big challenge with this, and it's, this is going to be particularly acute as it relates to climate change, is that when you're bringing private capital in, there's inevitably a focus on projects that can be turned into a profit. <laughs> so mm. if you look at what's, what's happened on the infrastructure side, you know, we've, we've significant reasonably significant levels of finance have been channeled into power generation, for example, where there are, you know, pretty standard terms through which a private investor can generate a return. There's a huge shortfall in other areas, though, like water supply and sanitation, which are less easy to, to monetize and, and make a profit from. And I think this issue of blended finance is, is still considered, and I think rightly, as you know, one of the solutions to, to climate finance moving forward. But mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's a pretty big risk to, um, to sort of just move forward sort of business as usual uh, without taking a sort of serious look at, at some of the failings and some of the challenges that, that we've encountered today on the infrastructure side. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think one of the things, I, I mean, you mentioned um, this earlier in terms of obviously, um, you know, African countries, see a certain hypocrisy in that the West has been using um, energy sources that have damaged the climate as means of improving themselves economically and, and building themselves up and now having a, you know, a, a sort of a, a, a go or, or criticising African countries for um, doing the same. And, and one particular country um, that you focus on and highlight in the report is Mozambique, which is used as, a, as an example of a, a nation that is profiting um, particularly from um, gas in terms of helping its GDP, and which of course then helps um, the people of Mozambique by raising living standards and improving the overall um, financial state of the nation. So in, in terms of nations like Mozambique, how do you think that you can convince countries like Mozambique that are getting uh, financial rewards from the, the fossil fuel sector to, to move to renewables? I mean, I perhaps controversially think that in the short term, we shouldn't. I, I mean, I think it's worth a bit of a bit of context here, right? So Mozambique is um, a country of 30 million people. Uh, their electricity consumption, did this calculation the other day, actually, their electricity consumption is less than the UK uses on, on washing machines. Right, mm. they're a they're a country where the GDP per capita is is five hundred dollars. Um, the UK is a country where GDP per capita is forty thousand um, dollars. And Mozambique's 
cost of emissions per person are incredibly low. So, um, so I looked at this. So today we're talking on the 20th of January. Mm-hmm. Um, by today, this year, the average person in the UK will have contributed more CO2 emissions than the average Mozambican will have over this entire year, right? So just to sort of clarify the scale of the disparity here. And I mean, you stack against that the benefits for Mozambique. So the, the gas could increase government, government revenues by about four or five billion dollars a year. And you know, for a country like Mozambique, this is critical. This is money that can go into education, health, drive development. Um, you're also producing gas, which can help to low cost power, which, mm-hmm. as we've said before, is critical to drive industrialization. So I think if you if you take the perspective that there's a finite carbon budget left in the world, and you know there's a finite amount of carbon that can that can be emitted, which most sensible people do, um, I think driving development in an area like Mozambique is a good use of that. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's incredibly difficult to argue to a country like Mozambique that they shouldn't, particularly if you. I mean, I saw I saw in the news recently that there's a, an airline in Europe that. <laughs> have flown 18,000 empty flights across Europe just to maintain land slots, right? So if you're talking about exploiting gas so that a country can fund education and health uh, versus that, I think it's a very, very difficult sell. Um, I think what what we can do is we can start supporting them on their energy transition and not as a lot of Western governments are sort of looking at now by by limiting their development choices, but by helping them sort of slowly bring on board alternatives. So they have huge hydro potential, for example, there are a couple of large hydro projects that we're, we're supporting them to develop that can help not only their energy transition, but also the energy transition of South Africa and, and other countries in the region. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting, as you say as well, that uh, Mozambique is a, a nation that is obviously using um, gas to be able to help its citizens and, and to improve itself um, financially. So therefore, do you think that Mozambique is a good example of a nation that is using not as harsh um, fossil fuels like coal, but is using gas to help um, increase its uh, GDP and, and keep itself functioning? And do you think therefore that it's going to be an important example of how um, nations that are still using a lot of coal um, which obviously cause a, a hell of a lot of um, emissions. Mozambique is a great example of a nation that is using a, a less harsh uh, fossil fuel um, to improve itself. And that Mozambique's example will convince other countries that are using things like coal to pr- transition to um, gas and then eventually transition to renewable energy. Uh, I mean, I mean, gas... So gas is gas is very important for, for the transition for a couple of reasons. As you, as you say, it's not coal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's sort of in per unit of energy per kilowatt hour. It's uh, it's around half as um, as environmentally damaging as as coal. Um, but it is also an enabler of the transition to renewables. So so producing power from gas is is a very very flexible way of of producing power. You can fire up and fire down. And, um, a gas turbine pretty quickly. So gas is perfect to offset the, the variability of renewables like wind and solar. So when the wind isn't blowing or the sun's not shining, you can fire up the gas turbines. I think Mozambique, you know, Mozambique's role um, in the energy transition can probably be 
considered a little bit closer to home. So if you look at the, the sub-region in which, in which Mozambique exists, South Africa is heavily dependent on coal. Um, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the bright spots of, of COP was this sort of $8.5 billion uh, global commitment to support South Africa's transition away from coal. And um, gas, along with renewables, is going to be a, a key part of that transition. Um, also, you know, Mozambique's gas has a major role to play to support existing hydro. So neighboring countries like Zambia and Malawi um, have a significant number of dams that they rely on for their power. And as a consequence of climate change in many ways, um, the, the the output of this of these these dams is decreasing. You know, and a lot of this is actually of our making, to be honest, in the West. So you know, gas can actually help to offset this, balance this and, and address that. I think on this is one of the very important aspect that often gets overlooked which is uh, which is cooking so the vast majority of africa still still relies on on wood and charcoal to to cook mm-hmm. and this is extremely polluting if you can imagine burning you know burning blocks of wood inside your house or burning charcoal inside your house is extremely polluting and, and globally this leads to around four million premature deaths a year mm-hmm. Six hundred thousand children die a year as a consequence of, of indoor cooking with with wood and charcoal and, and gas is a basically the <laughs> the primary technology to shift away from that i mean most mm. most houses in in europe or the us to rely on gas for cooking so i think to, to tell a country like mozambique that they can't develop gas when you know there are six hundred thousand children across the world dying from um, from burning wood in their houses mm. yeah. is again quite a difficult position to take absolutely absolutely um the report also highlights um, Nigeria um, because recently there have been financial uh, reforms in Nigeria that have allowed for electricity to be more widely distributed to consumers. Now, how important do you think internal financial reform is for African nations which wish to pursue the goal of greener energy? I mean, so financial reform and you know addressing. Basically, getting the power sector working, I think, is is the most important thing. Um, it's step one. Frankly, I think it's more important than than just building more renewables. Um, mm-hmm. So the you know the kind of very simplistic strategy to to decarbonizing the country is to use electricity to power as much of the economy as possible. Um, and you know, you see in the West where it's then into vehicles and things like that, and then make that electricity as low carbon as possible. That's very simplistically the you know, the strategy for decarbonizing the country. Mm-hmm. But the, the starting point of that has to be a functioning power sector. Um, so Nigeria is an example of where, where this is desperately needed and, and there's been some progress recently. So in, in Nigeria, we've been supporting the, the vice president's office on um, power sector reform for, for a couple of years now. I guess just by way of context, so Nigeria has a population about three times that of the UK um, Country, but the country consumes about a fifth of the power of the UK. Um, one in one in twelve households in Nigeria have a generator when the power is not available, which you know, until recently was very very often. They fire up the generator and, and burn diesel, and this diesel is massively polluting, about three mm-hmm. times more polluting than, than using power from the grid, and and obviously and also massively more expensive. So, so mm-hmm. four or five times more expensive than power from the grid. So. So kind of addressing this challenge is a massive economic and environmental imperative. So, you know, addressing this, there's been progress recently. Um, fundamentally, this 
is a challenge of, of incentives. So there are distribution companies in Nigeria who they buy, they buy the power and then they sell the power to the consumers. And essentially they were not collecting enough money. So they were, and they were also buying power for more than they were allowed to sell it for. And the mm. price was regulated, um, which resulted in huge underinvestment in the, in the sector. Um, and also very little incentive or actually even a negative incentive for these distribution companies to sell this, to sell this power. So ad- addressing this is obviously a, a huge political challenge. Um, it's quite difficult to tell, a, to tell the population in a country like Nigeria that you're planning to increase the tariff to address these issues when the quality mm-hmm. of supply is so poor. Yeah. So we, we, we worked with the government to sort of work through the, the politics of this, which was, as you can imagine, quite a long, complex process. And mm-hmm. the, the conclusion was that we should have a, a tariff based on the quality of supply. So essentially, you know, custom, customers would pay based on the quality of supply that they were getting. Um, and let's move forward. And Nigeria is in a situation now where there's about 20% more power is going to be sold through the system this year than was last year. Um, this results in less diesel being burnt in generators. This results in huge savings in terms of CO2. So it's mm. about three and a half million tons of CO2 being saved. And, and just for scale, um, that is equivalent to delivering about 3,000 megawatts or about $4 billion worth of, of solar investment, which is more than has been installed across the whole of Africa in the last six years. So, you know, getting the fundamental sort of flows of finance right through the power sector, I would say is the most fundamental issue that needs to be addressed. And getting a, if you have a working power sector, it's actually relatively easy then to, to change what you're putting into it, <laughs> you know, yeah. move, move away from gas to renewables. But if you don't have a functioning power sector, then it's, you know, it's impossible. You're just wasting money by, by investing in solar or whatever that might be. I think on the, I guess on the topic of, of markets, another, another big area that I think really needs looking at is, is power trade. So mm. African countries are increasingly becoming interconnected. You know, we have power markets in Europe. There's a, a similar aspiration across Africa, uh, but trade is very, very limited. And we did an analysis um, a couple of years ago looking at the, the potential savings of power trade across West Africa. And, um, you know, the, I guess the, the most important conclusions is, is if you look at transporting power from countries that have a surplus, be it of gas or be it of renewable power, to countries that either have a deficit or are still reliant on burning diesel and heavy fuel oil, basically the, the oil that ships <laughs> are powered from, yeah. um, you could save about $30 billion billion dollars uh, across the region over this decade and you could massively reduce emissions you could reduce emissions to the extent of taking all the uk's diesel cars off the road for a year um so you know the, this is to be honest this is i think where the big value is and i think this is where you know Western countries should be partnering with African countries. Um, the big challenge is to get any of this done, you know, to get markets to work is, is complex and inherently incredibly political. Um, and one of the challenges that the West have, just being completely candid, I guess, is the, you know, the sort of the, the push that they have for renewables and this kind of taking financing off the table for things like gas is is really damaging their relationship and really sort of closing off the space that they have to work in areas like this. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something else that is um, also important, and you mentioned it in relation to um, the burning of wood, is all obviously uh, deforest, 
degradation and the removal of trees and of course the impact that then has on um, the climate and Gabon is mentioned as a, as a nation that is particularly um, important given how much of its forest it has um, maintained and there is an argument there the need um, to provide some form of uh, financial uh, reward uh, for it as a nation um, because it has maintained so much of its um, forest so how best do you think that um, financial reward could be directed to nations uh, like Gabon that have protected their forests and have ensured that there hasn't been the same sort of scale of deforestation as we've seen perhaps hundreds of years ago in Europe or that we are seeing uh, at the moment in nations like Brazil? Yeah, so, I mean, this is a big challenge. So you've, you've got a country like Gabon, which is 85% rainforest, um, one of one of the few countries in the world that's actually an absorber rather than an emitter of mm-hmm. CO2, um, absorbing emissions equivalent to the to the emissions of Holland, actually. So like a, a significant kind of sink of carbon. And there's a huge there's a huge global benefit of this, um, but obviously there's there is a there is a cost to Gabon. <laughs> there's a there's a cost there's an actual cost to maintaining it, and then there's you know as you say there's a if you compare them to a country like Brazil, there's been a historical cost and an opportunity cost of foregone earnings. You know, foregone earnings from whatever it may be, logging logging trees or uh, planting crops, agricultural revenues. Um, but I guess dis- despite this, there's still not really a formal mechanism to reward countries like Gabon for the value of their forests. And, you know, this is this is replicated across Africa. You know, there's Cameroon, there's the Democratic Republic of Congo. There are lots of African countries that are in a similar similar situation. Um, I mean, European countries have, a number of European donors have sort of stepped up. European donor countries and they're, they're paying Gabon around five to eight dollars for every ton of carbon that you know, that these forests actually absorb. Um, but this is on a on an entirely voluntary basis. Um, and I think, you know, there are a couple of challenges with this. <laughs> the first is the value that they that they're getting. So if you if you look at the European carbon trading trading scheme, um, the incentive on a a European company to to avoid emissions is around um a hundred dollars a ton, mm-hmm. um, which is you know obviously significantly more than the five to ten dollars and that, that Gabon are getting for the, for the carbon that they're absorbing. So that's, that's one challenge. I think the other major, major challenge is that this is a voluntary scheme. There's still no sort of clearly defined global architecture for them to be rewarded and incentivized for what they're doing. And this mm-hmm. is a voluntary scheme that's sort of at the large jest of Western governments, which inherently means it's, it's unreliable. Um, so I think there, are, you know, there is a need to get all of this all of this sorted out and all of this in place. And, you know, it sort of relates to what I said at, at the beginning about fairness. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not for, for us to say what's fair, but unless, unless there is this sort of a global architecture and flows of finance in place that African countries and other countries can at least, can at least look at and say is credible, can at least look at yeah, and yeah, say, you know, that in, some, that in some way is sort of realistic yeah. based on the, you know, the role, the role that we've historically played in emissions and the role that we're playing in emissions now. And any, any sort of move to address climate change, I think, is, is doomed to failure in reality because, you know, if you want people to play ball, they, yeah. have, they have to appreciate and understand that there's something there. Um, you know, democratic countries won't stand for something that isn't. Um, yeah. I don't think the UK would. Yeah, no, absolutely not. I, I, I completely 
um, agree. Now, you mentioned um, attending COP26 earlier, and I just wondered, just for the um, listeners, I mean, what was it like attending um, COP26? What, what, what did it feel like? Because it must have been a sort of a very um, strange experience, given how much attention was on um, the conference and, and, and how pivotal it was seen as. Yeah, I'll be honest, you, I didn't really notice the attention when you're there because you're <laughs> yeah. sort of too busy, too busy being there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the daily COVID testing was a pain. Um, I know there was a, there was a lot of talk about issues of venue capacity and queues. I I didn't experience that to be honest. Um, I think the UK did a did a good job of making sure that people who needed to attend could attend, and you know people were people were vaccinated. People from other countries were vaccinated before they before they came. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we were there. We were there primarily because we had a number of the countries that we work with. Um, we had advisors supporting their delegations, so we're supporting delegations from Sierra Leone, Cote d'Ivoire, Togo. Um, I'll confess, we weren't involved in the negotiations. I mean, there's no reason why we should be. Yeah, 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 um, so I'm, I, won't, I won't really comment on that. But from a, you know, as I said before, from an African perspective, the the, the failure to honor the, the hundred billion dollars a year was was a bit of a cloud. Um, I think it was quite well structured. So the first the first week was a bit of a trade show. Um, not disparagingly, it was it mm-hmm. was actually a constructive session. I think it helped to set the tone. There were a lot of you know, announcements that weren't a part of the core COP settlements, but sort of peripheral announcements and coalitions of countries and philanthropists and private sector getting together. And there were announcements like there was this, as I mentioned before, this $8.5 billion um, to address South Africa's transition. There was, from our perspective of interest, there was, there was $1.5 billion um, announced to help protect the, the Congo Basin. Um, there was an announcement of around $25 billion to fund uh, an adaptation accelerator program to help mm. Africa's sort of adaptation. So I think all of that, having all of that in the first week was actually very good and very useful to sort of build momentum. Um, you know, the governments that we're supporting with spent a lot of time during that first week showcasing projects and investments to, you know, as I say, it was it was a bit of a trade show. So mm-hmm. showcasing their projects and investments to whether it's development finance institutions, potential private investors, philanthropists. Um, so I think that was good. I mean, there was, there's still a, a bit of skepticism. I think <laughs> a, a well-justified skepticism based on based on kind of what's happened historically about whether this money will actually flow <laughs> and yeah, the pace yeah. at which this money will actually flow. But uh, but you know that was the, the, the sense was was a, a reasonable level of optimism on that on that side. Mm-hmm. And optimism is, of course, something that certainly in relation to um, the climate and, and, and climate change is something that uh, we need, certainly. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, uh, Gareth. It's been fantastic to have you on, and I have one final question. We've, of course, been discussing um, climate change primarily in Africa and how um, to deal with it, but obviously it is something that affects the entire world and, um, you know, uh, affects everyone living uh, on Earth. So my final question to you is this. If you could magically click your fingers and change one thing about global climate policy, what would it be? Yeah, I I think it's exa- I think it's what we've been discussing. I think it's I think it's a fair a, <laughs> getting a, a global architecture established that 
every country can regard as fair. Mm-hmm. If you look historic, there are huge, there's a huge disparity now in terms of emissions per person in different countries. There's a huge, huge disparity now in terms of um, cumulative global emissions per person per country. Um, and I think until, until there's a solution to that, until there's a, a sort of architecture set up that, that different people in different countries can regard as fair, um, things are not going to progress at the, at the rate that's necessary. And it, you will always have, you know, as you're having in the UK, you know, you're having mm-hmm. in the US, you're having people say, why should we do this if China are not doing this? Um, in Africa, you know, you will have the, why, why should we do this given that the UK have been polluting for 120 years? They mm-hmm. had their industrial revolution revolution in the 1800s we're having ours in the 2020s right you're gonna you're always going to have that so i think i think the most fundamental thing is to get that global agreement in place that people can at least regard as being in some way fair well i think that that is a a fantastic thing uh to hope for and, and to wish for on something that i know that you are working uh very hard to achieve with the Institute. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Gareth. If people want to find about out more about you and more about the paper and the Institute, where should they go to find out more about you and the paper and the Institute? They can go to the Institute website, which I can't recall off the top of my head, but I, I think if you um, Google Tony Blair, Tony Blair Institute and just transition, you'll find the paper. And I'm, I'm open to people getting in touch. So um, people feel free to email me on g.walsh at institute.global. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Gareth. Great. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, I hope you listen to the next one. (laughs) 